Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. In the first of this new series of Islam 21C unscripted podcasts, where I share a hot beverage with various authors about their fields of expertise, I join Dr. Uthman Latif in his own home library. A conversation centered around his postdoctoral research and upcoming book on empathy and conflict, touching on many of his personal reflections and thoughts on a range of subjects. We spoke about empathy, demonization and othering in film and language. We spoke about how to develop empathy, about the heart in Islam and the impact of ma'rifah, recognizing or knowing Allah, on our worldview. We also spoke about Instagram's compare and despair culture and some of his personal reflections from his recent trip to Auschwitz. We join the conversation when Dr. Othman is apparently overcome with a bout of uncontrollable laughter. I hope you enjoy. You know what's happened now? Your your dopamine levels have skyrocketed. <laughs> you know what it is? Yeah. Well, I've lived with that problem like, yeah. in my whole life. <laughs> Even when I was young. Yeah. When I was young, I used to laugh uh, like for no reason, but just... Did you get giggles, you know? Yeah, the worst There's times. five hormones, at least, that, you know, that uh, whose concentration can mm. be spiked in the blood just by talking, by listening. Oh, okay. So dopamine, endorphins, happy, uh, I think serotonin <laughs> as well, uh, and adrenaline and cortisol, the ten negative ones. Okay. Uh, when you hear, like, a uh, sad story and, okay. and that kind of stuff. Okay. Um, I saw a lecture very good wow. uh, about the power of these, wow. you know, stories because yeah, they they, they allow you to emotional contagion. Yeah. I'm writing, I'm reading right now. Yeah. Doing a chapter, bro, on uh, film. Have you seen uh, Camp X-ray? No. 2014, Christian Stewart. It's about Guantanamo Bay. Mm. So it's about this uh, bond established between the American guard, in this case, Christian Stewart. And uh, and a male detainee called Ali, mm. and uh, the 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 medium really between their relationship is uh, is a book Harry Potter, and so he introduces uh, her to Harry Potter because he's been reading the whole series. In oh, the I remember, remember the that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And she hasn't read it. She hasn't read it. So I'm writing a chapter now on uh, sim- symbolic and iconic codes in that film. Um, uh, that are used to uh, ossify, sometimes ossify stereotypes, other times challenge them, um, and so I look and other times complicate them actually. Uh, but it's quite interesting because one of the things that films use is emotional contagion, which mm. is quite different to uh, empathy, because empathy is more of a thought out process, you know, it requires deliberation, whereas emotional contagion is more of a instantaneous, immediate reaction. You know, where you see something and you immediately feel sad about it, you know. Mm. You might understand none of the context, but you just, the scene, of course, has an effect on you. So I look at the way that you get less of emotion contagion, more of empathy in that film, um, because there is a pre existing narrative of a war on terror. Mm. Um, Castigation, so Ali is castigated stereotypically as, you know, a. Enemy uh, combatant. Um, and combatant, exactly. Uh, but it's quite remarkable. I mean, you know, hats off to Pet- Peter Satloff was the ed- director because he sought to, in many ways, reverse those stereotypes through Ali, the character, uh, in many different ways, many different ways, you know. And it had an effect on, uh, on uh, you know, Cole, is an, Amy the Cole, is, yeah, the guard. Um, who first, uh, when she goes in, she's kind of one of the one of, one of the lads, kind of so to speak. Um, but then the more she interacts with him, the more she comes becomes to reflect on on what suffering actually means in a mm. context outside of her space. And this is why space and place is so key for us as Muslims, I think, because uh, it's about entering other other spaces to realize how other people experience life. So if you're speaking from the outside. It's a disconnect sometimes, disconnect, you know. Um, whereas uh, inside, like for example, I'll give you an example. At the end of the film, uh, okay, so she has to go, she leaves, you know, he uh, attempts suicide, things happen. But then 
the missing link, uh, i.e. via the medium, was the Harry Potter book that they never provided for the prisoners in the last edition. And there's a scene early on where he says, it's driving me nuts, uh, you know, I've waited so long. Now here this is metonymical, yeah, because he said, I waited so long, and we're wondering, for what? For the book, or because you've been stuck in this place? What did you wait for so long for? And, uh, and basically, the line captures both meanings. He waited so long for the book, and so long to hear news of his, you know, when it's going to be released, or if he'll be released. And she doesn't know that, but then she kind of understands what he's speaking about. Um, so when she says to him, uh, for the book, he says, and for the book. <laughs> yeah, that conjunction kind of gives it away, isn't it? Yeah. Um, but the but the disconnect is because they're not actually they're not in the same space because the door separates them, isn't it? So she's outside and he's inside, yeah. and so you have inside outside spaces. Um, but then there comes a point where, towards the end of it, um, you know, she uh, puts her hand through the door latch, and he she holds his hand, uh, vice versa, and they hold hands. And uh, and it's kind of a, it's a close up, uh, but it's an extended, elongated shot, mm. and therefore it carries more of more um, you know iconic effect and and uh, and meaning. Um, but then towards the end, she's left now, but she leaves behind the new edition on her for the book that he's been waiting for all that time, mm. as kind of as the last um, kind of memory of her for him, and uh, and he gets it from a new guard now who's with the the book trolley and uh, and as soon as he gets it he's uh, he's finding the first page quickly therefore the assumption is that he would have known that she left something for him because he's searching for it and she writes a message she says you know I don't know if uh, I think it's Salter one of the characters in the book yeah. was a good guy but I know that you are yeah love uh, Blondie she's called a Blondie um, but the point here was about uh, the written message as opposed to a type message because speaking about yeah. spaces yeah uh, and symbolism so if it was a written message it becomes kind of um, disconnected so if it was type disconnected if it was written it carries, carries more emotional worth you know yeah. so I'm writing a chapter actually on that film so it's um, the difference between Empathy and uh, emotional contagion. That's one f factor. The other thing, of course, is I look at um, <clears throat> I look at the way that iconic codes are used. So, for example, you have these uh, very kind of juxtaposed images, uh, but very spontaneous juxtaposed images. So, for example, you might see the American flag fluttering. You'll see that by the end of the film, mm -hmm. and then that's juxtaposed with. Uh, you know, uh, kind of just a quick shot of the Quran, mm. something like that. You know that happens, or uh, Americans, the guards collectively giving a salute, morning, uh, with Muslims praying salah. Mm. Typical, typical uh, image, um, but the but they carry a message behind them because in the praying ones, Ali is absent. You see, and in the uh, in the saluting one uh, that they, they kind of say an oath or something and uh, call is uh, doesn't mm. say anything so we see therefore kind of a, a, a breaking isn't it within themselves or a reconsidering within themselves or uh, you know a reshaping within their self-identity what it what does it mean to be American mm. what does it mean to be a so-called um, you know detainee in Guantanamo Bay um, yeah, so it's interesting when you look mm. at it like that, symbolic codes and how significant they are. Uh, Is this the book based on your postdoc research? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. So I have a deadline for March yeah. next year, inshallah. What's the overall topic? Is it all? Uh, well, it's kind of on empathy as a challenge to otherness in conflict. It's like that. And so I, I think, and I speak about conflict in terms of war, um, you know, wars waged against... Um, I mean, my big one is war in Iraq, and uh, and kind of what resulted from that war in Iraq and processes of dehumanization, mm -hmm. um, and uh, depersonalization, 
the rejection of empathy. And I, I forgot to tell you, by the way, so what led to this study uh, was something else, so connective though. So in 2004 or three, a woman called Alistair Peterson was in uh, Tel Afar in Iraq. Um, as a prisoner, sorry, as a my mistake, Chinese. as a as a soldier, okay. and um, and she was placed in a unit called Camp, uh, the Cage. It was called the Cage. The unit was called the Cage, and uh, it's where they would torture uh, and extract information from Iraqi prisoners. Um, and she was placed there, but she didn't like what she saw. We didn't know the exact details of what she saw, except there's another book called. Uh, my um, my rifle is more beloved than my something. I forgot her name now. The, the author. I have the book somewhere here. Um, and she 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 gives us insight about what happened in the cage, and she makes allusions to this woman called Alistair Peterson because Alistair Peterson she expressed distaste for what she saw. She was transferred, yeah. but then she committed suicide. By the way, she was I think the first uh, American suicide in the in the war in Iraq and uh, and she left a suicide note which was redacted um, and all the Americans um, you know uh, military said in from that uh, location Telefara was that she had empathy with the detainees the prisoners uh, and they yeah. used that word empathy they use it as though she was she committed yeah, exactly. That's it. So, so in the film Camp yeah. X-ray, in the beginning, uh, you know the uh, the the general, you know the okay. main one. He 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 instructs the others, and he says that you're not to have empathy for these people. You're not to talk to them. You know, therefore, kind of a a rejection, denial of empathy, even existing in a place like that. Uh, but what empathy allows for is allows for a consideration of human codes of recognizability. The fact that we can see those human codes in ourselves and we can see them mm -hmm. in others, um, there's an instantaneous, um, you know, drawing of affinity between people. Mm -hmm. And so I use the Alisa Peterson story and the case as kind of uh, as a framework, really, isn't it? With which, within which to situate this study, because they're very similar, and maybe Peter Satloff was I don't know inspired by Peterson. I don't know, yeah. because there's so many resemblances between the two. Uh, you He's know, the one who made the film. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like for example, there's a scene in Camp X-ray where Ali is uh, gonna have a shower, and so it's supervised, okay, and he's kind of outside in this kind of a fenced unit, and. Um, Amy Cole's uh, superior is a male superior, mm -hmm. and he's uh, you know instructing him using these uh, strong imperative verbs: get in, take your clothes off. And uh, Cole is there, but by that time she's developed a bond with him, and she doesn't want to see him. Look at him, yeah, obviously. And he notices that, but he doesn't say anything. But he, he's trying to hide himself. And then uh, so she uses like the peak of her cap. She's looking down, and the peak of her cap is like. I speak about it symbolically. What does the peak of the cap represent? Because she's looking down. Uh, the peak of her cap is like um, is like a veiling, mm. a veiling. Uh, not only and so if you look at it kind of uh, metonymically, then it's not just of of her from seeing Ali, but of her and seeing the guard, of her and the space in which she's inhabiting right now, or occupying even. Um, and so she looks at this one thing. She's looking at the fence, and the, and he, the guy says to her, "Are you, are you, are you supervising the fence, or are you supervising <laughs> Ali?" You know, and um, and she's very concerned with that. I mean, it's a big moment, mm -hmm. sort of a clim climactic moment in the in the film. Uh, and so all of these kind of are um, are self reflections, you know, of people in the film. Ali has his own self reflections, you know. He goes through them. Um, you know, because he sees Cole not as a typical uh, American guard. Allah in the Quran tells us, Laysu sawa, you know, they're not all the same. Yeah. And it's important, therefore, to see the world like that, because if you don't, you won't appreciate gray areas, nuances. And uh, even, I mean, Cole makes this point once when she's speaking to another one of her male kind of hyper masculinated colleagues, yeah. and he's, of course, swearing at the detainees. And she said, and I came here, and I and I and I thought things would be black and white, 
they went black and white, you know. Yeah. And uh, and they kind of both come to realization, and uh, this is a good mo- uh, good moment at the end. When, uh, uh, so you see Ali reading the Harry Potter book, yeah. and he's kind of arranged his bed, uh, and he's sitting upright, and he's kind of you know he looked quite like he's taking delight in the reading, and Cole is on the airplane back home, and Ali had given her a book that he had written. It's like a, it's a num, it's like a geometrical designs, and a numbering. I think the numbering was to do with the book actually, or or one of the books, Harry Potter books, and uh, and he just gave it to her as a kind of a thing, you know, and uh, and she's flicking through that back home. But what I speak about is I speak about the way that uh, simplicity is challenged because, yeah. I mean, the geometrical designs are quite intricate, uh, and the numbering code and system is quite intricate. So does that speak of a kind of a, a greater uh, evaluation that what she or what we assume in others of uh, of simplicity oversimplification uh, isn't isn't that I, I think that I think that the kind of film ends on that message because that's a final scene uh, that this is a man who had potential worthiness <coughs> you know intelligence uh, sophistication um, yeah so I think it's a uh, so is the emotional contagion like a, a, a substitute for empathy in, in, in regimes? Uh, no, so uh, Amy, what's her name? Amy, Amy Copeland, who wrote this article. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, I have it right here. I just underlined it right now. Mm-hmm. Emotional contagion response to narrative fiction fear. Uh, uh, I must acknowledge that empathy and emotional contagion are closely related processes mm-hmm. and that during an episode of engagement it is often difficult to determine where one emotional process ends and another one begins. Therefore, mm. they are interconnected. Mm. But just that empathy is more of a thought-out process. Because to empathize, by the way... So, mean a, 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 a conscious, deliberate Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So to empathize... So my studies have led me really to understand that empathy is to be cognizant of one's own vulnerability. If you can be cognizant of your own vulnerability, you can see and vulnerability in somebody else. If, you're, if you can appreciate your own vulnerability then you're going to see it in somebody else. Um, and But with empathy, because empathy, Hannah Arendt, she argues, that empathy is an activated response. You see, whereas sympathy is a passive response. You uh. could sympathize, emotional contagion, you could sympathize with somebody uh, and feel for his city and pity him, whatever, uh, but you're not compelled to do anything to alleviate his suffering. Whereas empathy, Hannah Arendt argues that uh, is activated where you would want to do something to help that person in their suffering and to alleviate their suffering. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes, I mean, it's just words, I guess, you know, um, but words are important for us to situate, yeah. we used to situate things, you know. Um, so I think in, in that book, because uh, Amy, uh, you know, Amy Cole is not in a position to alleviate his suffering, uh, but she is in a position to um kind of render a consideration through space she's rendering mm. unto him a reconsideration of himself and herself mm. to him within space um and i think that's uh probably the best you're ever going to get in that space because what can she do she can't do anything to mm. release him or to help him whatever um but then even that is important because you know, they have a, there's a, W.E.B. Du Bois wrote a book called The Souls of Black Folk, you know. And uh, he has this one line in Italian called Dum vivimus vivemus, while we live, let us live. Mm. And there's a sentiment in that line because, uh, I mean, he his whole idea was to, 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 tra- to transform in the minds of others. So not a self-transformation mm. because he believes himself to be worthy, but in the minds of others, uh, the value of, black people as a human species not as an alien entity called black people as a human species um and uh and he couldn't what could he do he couldn't you can't physically transfer you you know all except is that you render unto others a sentiment of yourself in the hope that that you know traverses the mental landscape of those people and they come to realization and i think she did something similar he did something similar they were to something 
because uh, within that one single space, um, neither of them could change the discourse that renders them, um, you know, like the other. Polarity. Yeah, the other, exactly. They couldn't do anything, yeah. but, but within an individual sense, uh, you mm. can do that. And I think that's quite powerful, you know. You mentioned uh, Hannah Andrit. Uh, mm. um, she also spoke about the banality of evil. If you were to take, like, a just camp X-ray Guantanamo guard out of that situation and put them somewhere else, mm. it's not like there would be evil people, you know, through and through. Yeah. There's something about the, the system, the machine, the circumstance. Oh, of course, of course. You know, that, because this um, is all. This is, you know, where people are projected to be others. Uh-huh. This whole idea, isn't it? You're you're projected to be an existential other. Therefore, you don't fit into my landscape. You don't exist in my space. Uh-huh. Uh, and it's like um, there's a very good poem by Sam. Sam, I have this by the way. I have an analysis of the poem. Well, some part analysis of the poem. The the book manager is Sam Keel. There we are. The face faces of the enemy. Uh. This is by Sam Keen. Reflections of the hostile imagination. What you're saying, and so he has in his prologue this poem. Uh, to create an enemy. Uh. Read it to you. Read it. Start with an empty canvas, sketch in broad outline the forms of men, women and children. Dip into the unconscious well of your own this own darkness with a wide brush and, and stain the strangers with the sinister hue of the shadow. Trace unto, onto the face of the enemy the greed, hatred, carelessness you dare not claim as your own. Obscure the sweet individuality of each face. Erase all hints of the myriad loves, hopes, fears that play through the kaleidoscope of each finite, every finite heart. Twist a smile until it forms a downward arc of cruelty. Strip flesh from bone until only the abstract skeleton of death remains. Exaggerate each feature until man is metamorphosized into beast, vermin, insect. Fill in the background with malignant figures from ancient nightmares, devils, demons, myrmidons of evil. When your icon of the enemy is complete, you will be able to kill without guilt, slaughter without shame. The thing you destroy will have become merely an enemy of God, an impediment to the sacred dialectic of history. I, <laughs> I thought I thought there's yeah. such true meaning <laughs> in yeah. his words because that's it. Yeah. What he's speaking about is a simplif- oversimplification, isn't it? Because you need to have, by the way, look at the focus on the words, yeah. broad outline. There's no nuances. Okay, there's no like you know fine parts, subtle considerations. This is a broad outline, um, you know, wide brush. You know, and then of no course, resolution. that's it. Then you yeah. kind of. You put onto your enemy all the negative attributes that you can, and it's like this is, of course, um, dissonance. You know, yeah. this is what the uh, Nazis used was used in Rwanda, is used in Bosnia, was used all the time in genocides, is used in Iraq. In Iraq, of course, they have a thing about the Hajis, isn't it? And the Hajis is, is a dehumanizing title. Really? Yeah, yeah. Because I have a book. I have a book by American soldiers, uh, who you know, and this is and this book is about what the Americans used as a dehumanizing label uh, yeah. for the Iraqis and the, and it was Hajis. Yeah. Interesting. So one of the use of Hajis, you know. Um, and so people, of course, have it all the time, I think, for us, you know, as Muslims, there is a, there's an obvious danger, you know, because yeah. if you see an, if you see a current like that, that's repeated again and again, uh, particularly at times when people develop genocidal tendencies, this is what they need. Yeah. Because if you've been trained in that school of dehumanization, you're you are going to become the warrior, you know, of of slaughter of innocence, yeah. isn't it? Because that's what your training has been. Um, you know, whereas I think for us there should be a much more care. You know. Um, oh, so so. Um related to just the health of someone's heart as well yeah for sure you know if you i mean i suppose we 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 uh, in our vocabulary we call what maybe others might call the mind the heart right um the qalb the thing which is responsible for thinking pondering reflecting i saw a lecture on on, 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 by a neuroscientist about Mm. how we create um, awareness 
Right, and how they explain, you know, in terms of current kind of um, current wisdom in neuroscience, that that awareness is simply controlled hallucination, um, because we have so many uh, stim stimuli uh, just bombarding our senses mm. all the time. Um, That's interesting. There has to be, you know, not just the visual, but what we so many you know megabytes of or gigabytes of data is coming mm. in to to mm. our central nervous system mm. that um, there has to be a process of filtering and um, filling in the gaps, right? Because at any point in time, you're you're only able to kind of think about, um, you know, you only have to kind of to use the, the, the kind of computing analogy, you can only have you only have so much RAM, you know, that you can think about uh, certain um, or, or focus on a certain part of your visual for your field of vision, uh, hear certain uh, mm. slither of the spectrum of sounds. Okay, that that's interesting. Can, I mean, it makes me think yeah. of something. Uh, in the Quran, I think Surah Al-Mulk, Allah says, "Qul huwa ladhi anshaakum." And so in this verse, Allah says, It is Allah who brings you forth into existence and gives you uh, hearing and seeing and hearts. Mm. And little do you think. Um, and what strikes me, of course, in the eyes, one of the things is, uh, is the association between the three, between the seeing and the hearing and the heart. Yeah. Because the Quran speaks about, you know, basira, afalatu basirun, about not just seeing, yandurun, but Allah speaks about perceiving. And so, in terms yeah, of what you're speaking about, because, yeah, yeah, because you could see, but you're not seeing with the yeah. heart. You could listen, but you're yeah. not hearing with the heart. That's it, exactly. So, if you, for example, because I understand your point, but that's if you're looking at it from a linear perspective isn't it if you're only concerned about the outward and about what you're seeing and you're listening to but you there's no connection of the listening and the hearing of the hearing to the heart mm. um and you mentioned in the beginning the heart is a is a is a vessel it's the it's the engine isn't mm. it of man and the prophet said that indeed in the, the body there's one lump of flesh if it's sound everything else is sound mm. that's that's the heart now with the heart from the heart comes ma'rifah and ma'rifah is is the essence isn't it? Because recognition, that's it, recognition knowing. of Allah. That's the mm. first thing, recognizing Allah. When you recognize Allah, it changes your um, your life perspectives, you know, concerning who you are, mm. who others are, and who's above you, Allah. Um, and so you could think about conscience uh, in a way, you like you mentioned, you're bombarded by. I have a book called Oblivion, and it speaks about this Oblivion, yeah. because it speaks about the more that you're, uh, you have an overload of information, the more you forget, because the more oh, yeah. new memories are created, the more you forget yeah. of the past. Um, but if you just kind of try and square this all up with uh, our understanding of of Matif of Allah, you could live in the present all the time. But only if you make not yourself the focus, but Allah the focus. In this article about uh, Instagram, it spoke about women who, like you, I think you mentioned, uh, one woman interview said, I'd take 20 minutes taking my own photograph. <laughs> 20 minutes, yeah. Uh -huh. Now, what it does is, it results in something called compare and despair. Because mm -hmm. you're never content. You can't be if you're comparing with us. The thing about um, it's controlled hallucination, yeah. right? It's 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 you know when 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 you're speaking to someone you're not speaking to them, mm. are you? We're speaking to the the image, you know we we have oh, created yeah. of them in our of minds. Of them, oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that image is uh, influenced or, or or determined even by our background kind of indoctrination, our background uh, beliefs, yeah. and this is so. Uh, in line with this this poem you just mentioned, yeah. And what else? There's a danger in that because, like you mentioned, if you're speaking to people based upon your own image of them, uh, maybe it's an untrue image, and that would that would dictate not only the discourse but the way, the mannerism of the discourse. If you see somebody, for example, as unworthy, undeserving, uh, yeah. you would not speak to him in a way that seeks to empower him. 
but as a way that seeks to belittle him in a condescending way. Mm. But again, it's based upon your image of him, and that's of course relative, relative, and it could be biased, you know. Mm. In the Quran, Allah says, mm. This is a key principle. Mm. Allah says, Say, Tell my servants to speak in a beautiful way because shaitan seeks to sow discord between them. And so, if you always remember that shaitan is ever present in that sense between people, seeking to corrupt their affairs between them, uh, you could um, you know, speak in a way that is unbefitting you know, to, mm. to others. Uh, and that's something that's, of course, uh, less important to the way that you behave towards others, that you've, uh, you know, subconsciously uh, mm. dehumanized or you've, uh, you don't consider to be worthy enough, you know. So I, I suppose your research, um, would, uh, based on your research, would you, would you say that uh, empathy as an active process uh, is something which seeks to undo that? Or seeks to uh, update the image someone has in their mind. Uh, well, I think yeah, I think it has to because uh, to empathize means you have to see, you have to try and see yourself in somebody else. Mm. That's what empathy is, isn't it? I think one you have to try and see yourself in somebody else. Uh, you know, growing up, of course, you kind of were taught that empathy means to be in someone else's shoes. Mm. Uh, but then you realize, well, it's not entirely true because people wear different size shoes. And unless you're cognizant of someone's differences, you can't empathize with them. Empathy does not mean that you see them like you see yourself. That's oh. biased. Yeah. That's yeah. stereotypical. And that's dehumanizing, by the way, because that means you expect them to be like you. Mm. And that means you've said something about yourself. And that's in fact a way of dehumanizing them. But the way to humanize them is to say that you're different. And in spite of your differences, I see you as, I see myself as a worthy human being. That's a, thing, a key difference uh, mm. between, you know, uh, empathizing with someone and, and trying to empathize with someone. Um, empathy is manifest in different ways. I think that 1967, the article by Ador Theodore Adorno, Education After Auschwitz, was quite a seminal article. Um, because of the context of the Holocaust. I mean, his article was about the Holocaust. Mm. And it was about his opening line is a premier demand upon all education is never again Auschwitz. Um, and so he looked at, you know, uh, German society and saw that they were used to, um, you know, certain, uh, you know, uh, societal protocols. They were used to uh, disciplinary regulations in schools or they were used to etiquette and mannerism with their parents uh, you know kind of structured around um, kind of an authoritarianism uh, and a hyper masculinity uh, and a subservience to power and so he said that that was translated in schooling system with saluting teachers with mm. you know singing anthems with kind of uh, respecting teachers irrespective of what they're saying uh, with parents with uh, you know uh, kind of uh, uh, a kind of an enforced strict obedience and so he said that when Nazis came to power in 1933 uh, they played into that mm. so the Nazi young children were already used to that so when they came to power they kind of understood that that's kind of something we have to fertile go. ground yeah fertile ground exactly mm. obedience to authorities and kicked in yeah. Um, and so he kind of outlines that there needs to be a need for the next generation for parents to reteach their children empathy so that if genocidal tendencies emerge in society, they would know how to act and respond. Mm. Uh, I've, I've been looking at this for I mean, some years now, years, and I've, alhamdulillah, read different things uh, about it. I've, I just uh, had a lengthy section on, on a chapter I wrote on a book called uh, The Ponari Diary by a man called Kermir Sakawich. And this was my first look at empathy in language or seeking empathy in language. And what he does, and this man was Lithuanian, you know, and he was uh, 1941 to 43. Um, he was uh, in a place called Wilno, which is a within which is a forest called Ponari Forest, and the Nazis used 
that forest as a kind of a dumping ground for the Jews, and mm-hmm. they would take the Jews, transport them there, they would dig the trenches, they would shoot them dead on the site and bury them. And uh, and this man lived there, so he could see from attic of his roof what was happening, and he wrote that diary it's over here yeah. uh, for two years, 1941 to 43. Uh, you know, this is it. Uh, yeah. And bystanders' account of a mass murder. Uh, so, uh, but what I, I find interesting, and I went through the entire diary, uh, is what he did is, uh, when he would write, he would, uh, he would fold up his, wrap up his papers and put them in bottles and bury them. And he was not a Jew. Yeah. He wasn't a Jew, okay? Uh, he was a Lithuanian, he was not a Jew. And, um, and then he was accidentally killed. He was shot accidentally in 1943. And then his discoveries were unearthed. But what I look for is, I look for... Uh, empathy in language. He, real life, was a journalist. Therefore, he wrote from with more of a didactic style. Um, you know, he didn't wasn't oftentimes expressive about what he's seeing or show emotion yeah. like a journalist would. That's but sometimes he did, however. And I look at the way that he even uh, you know the narrative, the syntax is juxtaposed sometimes. Um, Overemphasis in one area, less emphasis in another area. He speaks about clothing. Clothing and color is very significant in that book. Uh, for example, you find a lot of uh, references to nakedness. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Jews were brought in naked. Um, you know, that's a, that's a lot, a lot of that. But sometimes he, one particular point, by the way, he mentions uh, a girl who was dressed. And uh, and in that description, there's uh, an emphasis on the fact that she ran to her mother. And he doesn't have, by the way, a lot of uh, uh, emotion. You know, in his book, he mentions numbers. Fifty were shot today, and then he ends up in the chapel. But in this scene, the girl with that red dress, you know, she runs to her mother. Her mother's already kneeling down and waiting to be executed. You know, and she runs, and and he has her exclaim, "Mama, Mama!" You know, and that's there, and uh, and then they're both shot dead. But the point is, uh, I look at what makes that anecdote, well, that sorry, uh, that description different to others. Mm. Within the within the same few pages, uh, and I think that it's, imp- it's important to look at subtleties and differences in language and style and what makes things different, uh, you know, and how people saw the world around them, mm-hmm. and how that contributed to their their sense of humanity, not only of themselves because of their what you might have seen as a responsibility to record of that, uh, but how we saw others at the same time, isn't it? You know. Mm. Um, we learned so much. I was in when I was in Auschwitz. I asked. Uh, we had a very good uh, tour guide, you know. And I said to him. So I was concerned with type, typography, which is the arrangement of uh, landscape, you know, arrangement of uh, of places. And I was concerned with that. And I knew a bit about Oswegian, you know, where Auschwitz was, and I knew about the contrast. Um, but when I got there, what struck me were the trees at Auschwitz. You know, because there's tall trees around the perimeter mm-hmm. of Auschwitz, and um, and so I thought to myself, there's a poem called "The Haunted Oak" by by uh, Dunbar, and he was the most celebrated, the most gifted African American poet. You know, Lawrence Dunbar, and he wrote this poem called "The Haunted Oak," and it was about uh, lynching mm-hmm. but from the perspective of the oak tree yeah i mean the oak tree of course has a you know has a kind of a metaphoric or you know figurative voice and the oak tree explains uh her feelings uh when the man was writhing in pain and agony being lynched on her and um it's a way of uh transference you know transferring emotions uh, from one entity to another one uh, and uh, and I thought about that when I saw the trees and I saw I said to the woman I said uh, what about it? I said were there trees did they were there trees growing around there and she said of course she said they were the first witnesses okay. <laughs> so that's what she said I thought my god um, I said, I said, yeah. exactly that's what I've just been feeling <laughs> what was yeah. so she said she's the first witnesses and it's true Shuhud on yeah exactly exactly um, be witnesses so one Allah yeah. And Allah in the Quran says, uh, 
That day the earth will tell about its news and the trees will speak and everything. May Allah save us. Um, and I said, and I thought to myself, well, that's very interesting because how then would a, a person facing the inevitability of death in that tight space? Uh, Birkenau is bigger than Auschwitz, isn't that big, yeah? Um, you know, where you're facing inevitable death, how would they relate to the trees? Why? Because they're seeing growth and life out there in the distance, uh, but not within themselves. Mm. And it really touched me. I thought that was quite profound. I thought, isn't that... Because you're looking out, out into the world, your distant, you know, periphery, your landscape, and you're seeing beautiful trees growing, and they keep growing, and they continuously growing, and they don't stop growing, and no one's cutting them down. Uh, but you, you keep getting cut down, every one of you, mm. again and again and again and again. And I thought to myself, well, wouldn't that be interesting if someone wrote about that? Because it's about how we connect to uh, nature. What effect will nature have on our own sense of self-humanizing? Does it have an effect? I remember reading Sophia Scholl. I mean, she's in Germany. She was in the White Rose Movement. You know, she uh, she was executed. Uh, and again, 1943, um, in Munich, in Germany, because she defied Hitler, treason. And uh, and uh, in her book, I mean, she didn't write a book, but in, in, in her letters that they used to write the book about her, yeah. um, they said she had a great passion for nature. You know, and then she'd kind of just sit, sit in puddles just to be surrounded with something. And if she was in a lake, she'd go out in the lake. And uh, she, if there was a tree, she'd hug the tree, you know. And I think to myself, well, I mean, only Allah knows. We can never know. We could just surmise and guess. Mm -hmm. Only Allah knows. But would that have had an effect on her empathizing with the Jews? Because the fact that she mm -hmm. could empathize, or she could not empathize, but she could connect with... Um, you know, what she saw as a working of nature around her in her landscape, did that transfer then? Was a transference, or is it a medium of transference, mm. you know, to uh, learning to empathize with others? So, how do you teach empathy? Can it be taught? Well, it's an interesting question. I think, uh, well, let's begin by saying that we as Muslims have an obligation to teach good. That's the starting point, isn't it? We're obliged to teach good, you know, to our children. Um, and I think, um, when I, I was speaking about the fact today in my bayan in the masjid about uh, gratitude, and I spoke about the hadith of uh, Mu'adh ibn Jabal, radiallahu when the Prophet took him took his hand mm. and said, Ya Mu'adh, inni uhibbuk. Mu'adh, I love you. If you just stop there for a moment, before we even continue, uh, you don't have an instruction as yet, but you get the, um, you get the uh, the bond building, you know, before mm -hmm. the instruction sets in. You know, you get the uh, foundation, the link of the foundation between human beings, based built upon trust, love, uh, closeness, attachment. Before the instruction sets in. He says, Ya Mu'adh in Hibbuk. And it's interesting, he says, you know, in the singular, as opposed to saying to all of them, I love all of you. And of course, mm -hmm. he loved all of them. But in this case, Mu'adh is singled out. Mu'adh, I love you. So you should say, Allahumma a'inni ala dhikrika wa shukrika wa husni abadhinga. Of course, Mu'adh would remember what he's just learned because look at how it came yeah. with love. And the Quran, of course, is full of examples of teaching goodness. You have the famous examples of Luqman teaching goodness. Um, in the, to his children, mm. to his son. Um, now, empathy means uh, to try and see the world outside of you as important, as you, if mm. not more important than you. You know, is to see somebody else who uh, doesn't have your life experiences, doesn't have your features, doesn't have your interests and passions, but has his own. And because of the fact that he has his own, uh, they're worthy. So there's many ways I think we could try and inculcate within our children and within ourselves an appreciation of that. 
one of the things that we discuss in Auschwitz is the importance of of uh, mental storying. What does it mean to mental story? So if you encounter anything, it's a simple you know mind process. If you if you saw a picture of uh, of somebody, you know it could be a, it could be a, a victim of whatever, uh, someone suffering, you know then you don't have the full narrative of that person, not let alone the entirety of their life, but not even for the moment in which you're seeing the picture. All you're seeing is a snapshot. Mm. There's nothing. There's Just no, the no, external Exactly. Well. You don't see what's there in the background. You don't see who's taking the photograph. You don't see nothing. You don't see... All you see is a single image, which is very, very limited and restrictive. Not um, natural. That's it. But when you try and mental story, you try and create a narrative for that individual. Mm. Now, your narrative, of course, is shaped and colored by your own experience. That's what it means to try and see yourself in somebody else. Um, so would you imagine, for example, that child who was uh, killed, for example, in a war, uh, his mother would have bathed him that morning? That's a possibility. Mm. Why not? It's a possibility. I oftentimes look at the clothes that they're wearing. The child, the child's wearing a T-shirt. If it's a T-shirt with a kind of a, you know an action man on it, because that was his favorite T-shirt to wear. That's <laughs> likely. That's why he's wearing it because that's why he liked to wear. Not knowing, of course, that would be the last one he would wear. Um, you know, so. I wrote a chapter, it's a very lengthy chapter, it's inshallah a good chapter, on um, a mental storying uh, yeah. from a, um, a blog called The Daily Cost. Daily Cost is one of the most widely read blogs in America, by the way. Daily Cost, yeah. And, uh, Daily Cost. Cost yeah, K-O-S, K-O-S. And this is uh, concerning the uh, tragic murder and killing, brutal slaughter of uh, of an entire Muslim family in Iraq called the uh, Al-Janabi family. Ah, yes. Sir. Yes, Abir Hamza Al-Qasim Janabi yeah. and her fa- mother, Fikhriya, yeah. the father, Mahmoud, and the young girl, Hadil. And they were all killed together, and she was gang-raped by the Americans, and they set yeah. her body on fire. May Allah have mercy on their souls. Yeah. Um, uh, so what I look at, I look at iconography, I look at images. So... Uh, there are no images which survive except a few. Okay, one is an image of Abir uh, when she was a young girl. I mean, she was younger at that time; she was fourteen, by the way. But this is probably when she was probably eight or nine, and it has a kind of a sepia background. So, a sepia background, of course, it, it what it does is it reinforces in the mind uh, that it's an old photograph. Mm. Now, it is it is an old, older photograph, but the sepia uh, kind of uh, Restricts the photograph, restricts it because it makes it look like an old and for older, older photograph. See, um, that's maybe no fault of of theirs because that's the photograph that exists anyway. But it's the way that we perceive the photograph mm. and what impression that has on our minds when you see that photograph. Um, and then you have the room in which the murder rape took place, and uh, the room is cleared out. Now it's an empty room, okay, and all you see is a person kind of brushing away what looks like blood you know, from the floor. Um, now, the room is empty. Now, when you know, Abir was uh, attacked, that room wouldn't have been empty. See? So, mental storing, what I write about in my book, in my chapter, is about what uh, is absent from the room and how we connect with that. If it's a bedroom, then we try and connect that bedroom to our own bedrooms. Yeah. Uh, not the exact details, but we know there's probably going to be a wardrobe in there, probably for the clothing, be a bed in there, probably. Uh, there'll be things on top of the, the, the chest of drawers, like uh, a, a beard thing that she likes, maybe a small mirror, maybe a teddy bear, anything like that, that we might have. Uh, so we're trying to see her within ourselves in a very limited, fragmented way. Mm. It's not connected, it's broken up. Um, but it allows for a mental storying. Now, we don't just see a simple and an empty room in which nothing exists and nothing happened because nothing exists in it. An obsolete, empty um, landscape. We don't see that anymore. We see now a place of meaning. Mm. You see, 
uh, in Loki's song on the Grenfell Tower, he his opening yeah. lines, I don't think the opening lines were about uh, about the room. In fact, he said, this room, mm. he speaks about this room, isn't it, where love was made and unmade, this room where memories were made, this room. And the focus on that, and I read about his song in my book, by the way, I have a short uh, section on it. I was just about to mention Grenfell. Yeah, yeah, I have that in my book. Yeah. So because it's this room, and this this is diaxis in English, diaxis, because it's focusing uh, our attention on the this, this room. It's a single, a single location uh, where memory, where love was made and unmade, and what you're seeing in the, you know, in the in the uh, music video, is you're seeing, you're seeing a room, you see a room, you see a person mm. sitting on the room, you see the the chest of drawers on the room, you see that small, uh, you know, the mirror and the teddy bear on the room, you see the small, you know, small things fluctuating, you know, in the room, uh, but the room is not there anymore. That's the whole point, isn't it? So it's kind of transposing uh, an story, entity, yeah, an entity yeah. in the room uh, that was absent, that was present, but then it was absent, and then it was kind of retold or remade in the mental storying. Um, and I think that's a very effective process because you try and imagine, imagine what is there, or imagine what was mm. there that isn't there now, you know. Imagine what life was there before the life was snatched away, you know. Imagine that mother in the morning before she had to see her dead child, for example, you know. Uh, and these things are important because they, they allow us to appreciate our own vulnerabilities. We try and connect to many mm. uh, dynamics there. One is about the temporality of, of time, time, because if, if that person, if we're considering the, uh, the kind of the the temporality of time in that setting, meaning how quick uh, time, you know, moved from where it was in the morning to where it was then. So we kind of yeah. consider the same in ourselves, isn't it? You're more conscious in yourself of how, how, what are your parting words, what are your parting actions, you know? Um, and what is the witnessing you're leaving for people yeah. after you? Uh, so I think that that's something I think is important, mental storying. Um, being compassionate simply and being merciful would make you empathetic, you know. Mm -hmm. um, it seems also getting a hold on or trying to fix certain natural kind of bad habits, bad traits of the oh, heart, yes. oh, disease yes. of the heart, oh, arrogance. Yes. Of course, absolutely. Self-centeredness. Oh, yes. Yeah, good point, yeah. because if you are self-consumed, mm -hmm. you know, if you're only in yourself, you can't see anybody else, isn't mm -hmm. it? You can't see anybody else. If you kind of, if you only see your self worthiness and your self uh, achievements or your self, uh, um, you know, your desires, if you only see yourself and you can't see anybody else, or you see less of everybody else and you see more of yourself, yeah. uh, whereas Islam, what it encourages is to quash the self. In the Quran, Allah says, "Whoever can." Whoever can quash, whoever can overcome the stinginess of himself, then they are successful ones. And this is in the context of ethar. Yeah. That's the context. So Allah says they preferred mm. others to themselves, even though they were in need. Then whoever can overcome stinginess of themselves, and they're successful ones. Um, so to do that, of course, you're you're empathizing with people because mm. you're you're preferring them to yourself. Uh, um, but like you said, that uh, requires a training of the self. Um, and I think that one of the key things really for us as Muslims is to is to uh, is to remain in dhikr of Allah. You know? and, I, and, I'm, mm. and I'm saying that not in a... I mean, of course, the Prophet emphasized a lot of verbal dhikr of Allah. You know? But once we become conscious of that, cognizant of that mm. uh, you don't have time like I spoke uh, in my bayan I gave some time back when the story first broke out about the Instagram one you know, mm. about why is it people despair when they compare it's because they're only seeing value from the lens of somebody else yeah. 
isn't it? That's 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 how they've been taught to see what's valuable. As long as you think it's good, how many good, likes you get? That's it. That's it. I mean, yeah. likes. If you don't get enough likes, it's not valuable enough. Mm. And okay, let if you get if we get a lot of likes and it's good, but if somebody gets more likes than you, you're gonna compare and despair, yeah. and therefore you will not be happy. You won't be happy as a person because you're never content with uh, your your own self image. Um, whereas Allah Akbar. In uh, in Islam, it's so beautiful because, so it, sorry in the, in the first in the first case, therefore you are seeking to be remembered by others, isn't it? Mm. Your happiness is contingent upon how much and how well others remember you. Uh, Allah in the Quran says, "Fathkuruni azkurkum." Remember me, and I will remember you. You know. So, and if you think about Lord of the Heavens and the Earth remembering you. And Allah in Hadith yeah. Qudsi says, uh, you, yeah. "Yeah, if you if you remember me, uh, uh, Allah by bragging yourself. about, yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, by yourself." Allah says, Allah remembers you by Himself." Uh, and if He remembers me in a gathering, I remember in a better gathering in His gathering, um, and so therefore, having Allah remember you, it puts everything kind of mm. of scale, isn't it? Not important anymore because Allah is remembering you. And that remembrance is not based upon how good you look. It's about mm. your heart. You see, Allah doesn't look at your forms and your shapes. Allah looks at your hearts, and the Prophet said. Um, and that's really a way out of, of, of the thing, I think, because if you have a higher focus, a higher ideal, it kind of transcends image, image-making, and living within mm. images, because that becomes uh, depressing for a person, and uh, it's uh, kind of a regressive state. It's not kind of, you know... And it's not an improvement on man's condition. Improving, it's more mm. of a regression of where he should be. Um, and I think it's troubling. I mean, for sure, perhaps they have some uses. Instagram, I've never used that, but maybe they have some uses. But I think that living, um, you know, in a in a in the culture of Instagram, where you become uh, over captivated and you become, uh, you know, uh, dependent on that, is uh, uh, is. Is, uh, is very problematic, you know, I think, for a lot of young people. Mm. Um, whereas if they have a higher ideal upon the remembrance of Allah, it's uh, far more fulfilling. And even and, then, uh, yeah. if, if someone makes Allah their primary goal, then Allah will put the the, the, the qubul in the hearts of people. Oh, yeah, Allah, Allah. Yeah, so true. This is a very good point. Very good point. Very good point. Mm. This is what the Prophet said, isn't it? Uh, you know, thumma yudhulul Allah gives them acceptance, you know, on on earth. Um, and I think that that's uh, what the heart needs, isn't it? it? Needs more of a remembrance of Allah. Mm. And I think it's important for people to keep some kind of wirid, you know, to keep some kind of a regular practice that they're strict yes. upon themselves to fulfill. Um, whatever happens, you know, something I try to encourage myself and my family mm. that we stick to this, and you don't. You don't give up on it, you know. So we try a few things, you know. One is the rawatib, the sunan in the day, the twelve rakat in the day, the two before fajr, four before dhuhr, two after dhuhr, and two after maghrib, after isha. Um, and then in a beautiful hadith in Tirmidhi, it's an authentic hadith uh, by Al Albani, rahimahullah. He said the hadith about man salla arba'an qabla dhuhr wa arba'an ba'daha. Whoever prays four rakat before Zohar, four after Zohar, the fire won't touch him. One narration, he's forbidden from the fire. Mm. Now, all of us want to be forbidden from the fire, isn't <laughs> it? And here they're probably telling us what you have to do, you know. And so if you try, take a few of these things and make them, like Duha, not on Duha, you know, optimum time like now is 9 a.m. in the morning, and it's, uh, you know, pray two rakats, four rakats, Duha, you know, Surah Mulik before you sleep every day without fail, you know. Um, Fajr Salah in the Masjid, if you can, you know, all these things are uh, all connected, all connected, you see. But mm. if you make it a practice on yourself, yourself, um, and you just try and stick to that, you know, and then you'll notice over time you'll see your improvement. Because even if you're trying outside of your home to do something good, you're, you're more, you know, you're you have more potential. From a spiritual sense and baraka sense, uh, if you are, um, you know, if you are progressing spiritually in your private space, then in the public space, 
you have more potential mm. you know and i think that's important for us so in a nutshell so then to to help develop and inculcate um empathy or the ability to empathize um number one this this notion of mental storing mm. is a good practice to engage in especially with mm. our children number two um dhikr of allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and uh, number three trying to um avoid or protect ourselves from some common disease of the heart you know, yeah yeah of course and not to become so obsessed so with uh, the current cultures that can have a damaging mm. effect on the soul um that could do away with uh, your seeing others and focus more mm. on seeing yourself see less of yourself see less mm. of yourself once uh, the son of Umar ibn Abdul Aziz he bought a ring you know expensive ring very expensive ring mm. and then the news reached the father was the khalifa your son's bought this ring and so he wrote a letter to his son and said to his son go and sell the ring and buy a ring made of chinese copper very cheap <laughs> yeah and have engraved on the ring warhamallahu mar'an arafa qadran nafsuhu may allah have mercy on the one who knows his true self knows his true worth <laughs> Meaning, he's saying you're not worth you're not worth that much. <laughs> Stick to the Chinese cup, but that's how much you're worth. But it's important practice, because what is encouraging the child is, uh, if you're living with that expensive ring, you're only seeing yourself yeah. in it. You've attributed to the ring importance because you consider yourself to be important. Live outside yeah. of yourself, and live and try and see how others live. You know, and I think that's just uh, sometimes just simple reflection, isn't it? Just simple look around the world. Mm. and see where people are um you know and uh just trying i think experiencing other people's happiness is very key other people's yeah. sadness is key visiting the sick visiting the elderly mm. um you know uh i try and uh, you know sometimes it's well like says very simple things you know um like if you just for one second look an elderly person in the face in the eyes when you shake his hand yeah and uh just look at his face and you think to yourself Allah akbar i mean there's so many contours to this face you know symbolically it's like these are battles this person has won and mm. lost in his life isn't it each of these wrinkles is uh it could be some kind of an emotional upturning in his life could be physical labor in his life you know could be the birth of a child you know from you know, the child or grandchild all of this if you look at it symbolically in the face you think this person has lived mm. a life i haven't You're lived a life with yeah 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 i haven't lived that life yeah. uh, but i can i can see hi, i can see him in himself you know harry's last stand i have a book there called harry's last stand can see the red one over there this is a while man this was written by a man called uh harry leslie harry smith and he wrote the book at the age of 93 wow. i think he's died now you know and um and his last stand i mean the whole book was about kind of an advice to the future generation of how to live and he kind of goes through his life from when he was uh, an adolescent a child uh and the different things that he saw the changes mm. in living in britain you see uh and that and he speaks about a very kind of uh, emotive moment where he they he was saying we didn't have any electricity or any central heating in the house and uh, so me and my sister had to cuddle up for warmth and that's how we got our warmth because oh, there was no heating yeah and then you think to yourself wow we we lived in a world where we didn't have the pre you know non central heating mm. you know it's like what we speak about now for my to my sons we lived in a world where you didn't have the internet you know yeah. we didn't have like you have laptops whatever yeah. we didn't have all of that and so uh, and i think therefore in the back to the story of the, about the old man but if you therefore look at the old man you think he's lived a life you know look at your own fathers isn't it mm. consider your fathers mm. or your grandfathers you know and and try and see you know that they've lived what you haven't lived mm. or look also at the hadith um, if you want to soften your heart rub the head of an orphan oh yeah yeah, yeah of course mm. feed him from your food yeah. the prophet said rub his head in pity feed him from your food and allah will fulfill your needs um mm. and have mercy on orphan you know so i think therefore seeing others outside of yourself you know yeah. and seeing value look at the prophet gave value to julaib and others they didn't and the prophet said this man is from me and from him three times 
just emphasize to them he is just as worthy as any one of you mm. you know mm. yeah, yeah and I think you know, may Allah give us uh, tawfiq to do I mean, that inshallah I mean, I mean, well I've taken a lot of your time no no you're welcome uh, it's wonderful yeah. I'm sorry for the uh, enjoy, uh, yeah speaking. nice <laughs> nice having a discussion yeah exactly. <laughs> Um, yeah. yeah, so we're in Sheikh uh, Uthman Latif's, what do you call this, a library? Or a, <laughs> w- so you've got enough books here to call it a library. Yeah, How many books are there in here? I think here yeah, there's probably about 3,000. 3,000 books, yeah, mashallah. There you have folks. May Allah make us, inshallah, you know, worthy of carrying the books. And you have, we're surrounded by books from probably the most. Tremendous uh, diversity I've ever seen in the library. <laughs> you have uh, everything from, you know, physics to uh, you know, yeah. da- Darul Salam translations of Sahil Bukhari. Look forward to chatting with you. Inshallah. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you so much.